So this talk is really about the, uh, the thought process behind what I do, as well as the amazing places that I get to do it in. And um, you know, I hope to convey the thought process and just the raw excitement of getting to work in places where the, your chances of making a major discovery every time you hit the ground with your pick or your shovel are actually quite high. Um, and so there, I've finished the talk now. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'll just start, start with the credits. This is, I'm, I'm actually involved in, uh, I've been working in Patagonia for about 10 years now uh, with many, many people, many amazing people from several countries, especially the U.S. and Argentina. This is a uh, project that's gone through uh, several funding uh, iterations, now funded by the, by the National Science Foundation. Uh, it involves many students and postdocs from the U.S., Argentina, and other countries. There are a lot of names up there, so I just want to tell you that <coughs> this is not just my work, but I'm representing the work of, of many people and, and uh, many young people, many really smart um, up-and-coming scientists. Um, so to get you thinking about why in the world I go to the end of the world, as Patagonia is somewhat, somewhat of a cliche, Patagonia is called the end of the world because it's the southernmost land that's not Antarctica. It's this uh, tip of land <coughs> extending into the Southern Ocean. Um, so these are some of the beautiful reconstructions. These are hand paleo globes. Ron Blakey uh, has made a, a life, his life, part of his life's work is painting beautiful pictures of what the Earth looked to, used to look like. Um, so just, just a very brief geologic tour. 240 million years ago, most of the continents were together um, in a giant supercontinent called Pangaea. And by about 150 million years ago, the time of Allosaurus, there was the North Atlantic Ocean opened. Um, and from, from this point on, there, the southern continents, uh, South America, Antarctica, India, which is attached to Antarctica, Australia, Africa, <coughs> have had a very distinct type of biology from the northern, um, from the, uh, northern hemisphere, which is called Laurasia. So we have Gondwana in the south, Laurasia in the north. We live in Laurasia, but today we're talking about Gondwana. Um, so 50 million years ago, even this late, geologically speaking, this is 50 million years ago, but to, to some geologists, this is yesterday. Um, even this late, um, South America and Antarctica and Australia are still connected. They're only separated by shallow water at best or little groups of islands. Um, now, 50 million years ago, and the, the entire rest of the talk is about 50 million years ago, so you can lock right on, in on that. We're going to 50 million years right now. We're staying there. Um, this is a very warm time. So unlike the present day, um, Antarctica, instead of being covered by miles of ice, is covered by forest. Um, there's no ice at the North Pole. Uh, so this is the, this is the, the, the last great greenhouse world um, before the uh, ice house world, which began um, a little bit less than, well, about 15 million years after this. So because the poles were so warm, we know from the northern hemisphere that plants and animals freely migrated across land bridges all the time um, during this warm interval. We presume this happened in the south, but we don't know very much about it. Um, the study area, the place where I've been going for the last 10 years, is here. Um, southern Argentina, which is in a vast region called Patagonia, which is the southern tip of South America. And you can see why this is interesting. It's connected to the rest of South America by land. It's, at the time, it was connected to Antarctica and really all the way to Australia. 
which seems hard to believe, but I'm going to make a, a believer out of you that this was really true. So uh, by going to this place and collecting fossils that have really been historically undercollected, about very, very, very little has been known previously to our project, um, we can learn a great deal about um, how living things have responded to climate change in the past and about these, uh, the biological connections between the southern continents. Um, so I'll just point out that, well, no, I'll just keep going. So to illustrate this point of the southern connection, so to speak, between Patagonia and Australia, I'll give you an animal example before I start torturing you with beautiful pictures of fossil plants. So these inconspicuous teeth were found um, not in Australia, but in Patagonia. They're about 61 million years old, not by me, but Resendo Pascual, one of the most famous Argentine uh, paleontologists and his colleagues. Um, so these are from uh, Argentina, not Australia, but they represent a very close relative of the platypus. Now, what could be more Australian than a platypus? Yet the oldest platypus, or very, something very, the platypus's sister, really, um, is not from Australia. It's from Patagonia. Now, if you sort of lock in on this theme, I'm going to show you many, many plant examples of the same thing. Plant platypuses, plant koalas, if you like. So what we've been doing over the last 10 years is trying to build on a a, a rich but ne sort of neglected legacy, which is most of the publications about the fossil plants are very old, like these from the 1920s and 1930s. A handful of colleagues have, mostly Argentines, have published a few papers about the fossil plants, but there's never been a, a really big follow-up effort since the 20s and 30s to systematically collect fossil plants from Patagonia from this time period um, and put them in a mo much more modern context. Um, in these old monographs, you have by today's standards, poor identifications, poor age definitions, so the ages of the plants aren't even then, um, and almost no geolo geologic context is given. So I'll just mention that this 50, 50 million year old flora, which is really 51.91 plus or minus 0.2 million year old flora, is what we're going to be talking about, but it's actually part of a larger project to look at fossil plants from the end of the age of dinosaurs to about 20 million years after the end of age, the age of dinosaurs in Patagonia. So I'm focusing in sort of on our flagship site where we've done the most work. But from all of these floras, we have about 600 species. About, we've collected about 20,000 fossil plant specimens. Um, almost, I'd say, of the 600 species, about 480 of them. There may be 520 were not previously known. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, this is our best friend in the field, this type of rock looks like nothing. It's something you try not to trip over. This is a volcanic ash. It was deposited when a volcano exploded. That's very good because when volcanoes explode, they deposit minerals with radioactive um, elements in them. Those can be, the radioactive decay constants can be used to date the rocks. And because we have found radioactive, I'm uh, sorry, ash falls like this, associated with the fossil plants, sometimes right on top of them for the first time we have ages that are accurate within two, maybe two, 200,000, 300,000 year resolution. Whereas before the age resolution of these was more like 10 million years. <laughs> so we have a vast increase in our understanding just of the ages, which means we can correlate these floras all around the world. Um, so we are talking about Patagonia, which is a legendary uh, tourism destination too. So I'll just show you a, a, some brief shots. Uh, we work in a, out of a town called Trileo, 
Um, it was founded by Welsh settlers in Patagonia in 1865. This is the centennial marker. Um, we st stay at a wonderfully dilapidated historic hotel called the Touring Club, <laughs> uh, where Butch Cassidy once stayed, where George Gaylord Simpson stayed, one of the greatest mammalian paleontologists who worked in Patagonia. We work out of this incredible brand new museum. Our main collaborator there is the director of the, this museum, whose shorthand is the MEF. Uh, this is the dynamo of paleontological research in all of South America at this little place because it's surrounded by fossils. It's the first museum that's actually surrounded by the fossils. You don't have to go from Buenos Aires uh, and drive 1,600 miles and then be out of food and dehydrate and die. You can work from here. You can get to any of these fossil sites. You can be digging dinosaurs in six hours. You can, um, you can be collecting our fossil plants in, in 10 hours from here. Uh, so this is, a, this is a major change in, um, in, in the accessibility of these outcrops. Um, the, the museum is in Chibut, which is where um, most of the most famous Patagonian dinosaurs come from. Um, also, most of the most famous South American mammals are also from here. And because of our project, some of the most famous South American plants. So the facilities there are great. Here are preparators working on dinosaur chunks just coming in from the field. Um, there are wonderful exhibits of Patagonian dinosaurs. Um, and we curate our collections um, in a, a very nice um, collections facility. This entire wall is, is our collections from one site. We have about four of these walls filled. So it's a huge effort to prepare, to not only to collect, but to prepare, catalog, just keep track of what, of what we have done. Um, you can see at the bottom right, air tools used to prepare out the fossils from the rock matrix. Um, once in a while, strange events occur. Uh, Manu Ginobili, the star forward of the world champion San Antonio Spurs, paid a visit one day. And I actually managed to persuade him to hold a fossil leaf and pose for a photo. <laughs> he was delighted. The next year, the backup center came, Fabricio Averto. They're both Argentines. And they said, ha, we're famous, and we can, get to, we can see the dinosaurs in the collections. Uh, some of the most famous wildlife in the world is very close to, to, to this museum. This is the Magellanic penguin colony at Punta Tombo, where you can walk around and baby penguins run between your legs by the hundreds. These are the southern elephant seals, the largest colony of southern elephant seals on the, on the, South, on the South American mainland. It's very close to where this museum is. All of the southern right whales, these are 50-foot-long whales, come to the same little embayment right near where the museum is to breed and to give birth. And they can be seen by the hundreds. Um, there's one surfacing right there. There's one doing a backflip. That's, that's a whale belly. <laughs> so just to give you some feeling for the place, there's so much to see in Patagonia, glaciers. History, sheep, if you like sheep. Boy, are there a lot of sheep. <laughs> so here's our site. So this, the museum I, I told you about is here. Most of the wildlife I told you about is here. The big glacier lake district is all of this stuff. I'm oh, sorry, the glacier district is here. The lake district is here. Um, so this is, this is Patagonia today. What you have is a, an Andean Cordillera, a big mountain range. Actually, it's not so high, maybe mm -hmm. six, 7,000 feet in this area. Um, it effectively blocks the Pacific moisture. So the, here are the Pacific clouds raining out, making some of the wettest places on Earth on the west side of the Andes, but drying, but the mountains intercept the moisture, thereby exposing rocks 
of, of ancient rainforests that we can collect in modern deserts a day at the office. So this is a spot called Laguna de Lunca, the Lake of Reeds, that I'm going to tell you about. Um, so it's a fossil rainforest, uh, probably from an, a previous version of the, of the southern Andes that no longer exists. The modern Andes here are about 15 million years old. Laguna de Lunca is 52 million years old. And going into this project, we didn't know what the climate was. We didn't know what a lot of the plants were. We didn't know what the age was. We didn't know if this was um, from, if these plants were from a mountain range, from a plain. And I think we're starting to get at least preliminary indi indications of all these things that I'll try to give you an idea about. Um, so what is the site? Well, it looks like this on the top. It's a lot of white rocks, white and black rocks. All those white rocks are full of fossils. And not just fossil plants, fossil fish, fossil insects. Um, last time we found a piece of a bird, a piece of a turtle. Uh, so it's turning out to be one of the greatest um, fossil assemblages in the world. It's going to rank right up, it'll rank right up there with, with the place where Archaeopteryx was found, I believe. Um, and then the black rocks are basalts. Those are lo ancient lava flows, et cetera. Um, so those white rocks are lake beds. Those are a sedimentation at the bottom of a lake that formed in a volcanic caldera. Uh, so a volcano blew up um, and placed ash over 100 kilometers diameter. The floor of the volcano sank and filled with water. That's what made the lake. Um, that, that and some of the other illustrations here were drawn by uh, Rebecca Horwitt, my spouse, who's sitting in the back row. Um, and so there's a little volcanic moat lake that probably wasn't there for very long, filled with ash very quickly maybe in less than 100,000 years, um, and still managing to preserve this, uh, this ancient ecosystem. So here's some views of Laguna de Lunca. Um, a lot of our fossils come from this one long, we call it a nose. It really looks like a giant nose, but it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, long, it's a long hill that exposes the fossils on, all around. The fossils occur up and down, representing different points in time. They occur laterally, representing sampling at the same point in time, but across space. So here is a very rare place in the world where you can sample fossils through time, or through space, or both. Um, so that's a view down the hill. And there's a view up the same hill. So you can, this is not the only place we sample here, but this is, to give, this is an example. We measure the rocks meter by meter. We characterize them. We sample them for these ashes. We sample them for their magnetic signature. They tell us whether the Earth's magnetic field was normal or reversed at the time. And of course, we sample the fossils very, 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 very heavily. And we cook our lunch in the ditch. <laughs> um, OK. So one of the reasons this place has not been very well collected is the rocks are so hard. Oh my goodness. And to, to collect effectively, you have to clear away tons of stuff, of hard, hard, hard sandstone mixed with volcanic ash to get it the thin, sweet little layers that are full of fossil leaves and other, and other, other stuff. So this, this sweet layer is only about that thick. But you've got to go through a meter of extremely hard stuff over a long distance. To give you an idea of how hard the rocks are, we're actually visiting this bench, as we call it, three years after we made it. It's still there. It hasn't eroded away. Um, so this takes a lot of people with pickaxes. We use gas-powered jackhammers, which makes a huge difference. And, but the most important thing of all is that the museum is within a day's drive. If you break your jackhammer, you can get a new drill. 
if you run out of food, you don't die, you get resupplied. Now we have satellite phones, we can actually say what we want, somebody comes with a truck. <laughs> it's, it makes a huge difference. Uh, and then when we get down to the pay level, you split the rocks, and you have the incredible thrill of the rock splitting open and seeing the part and the counterpart of the fossil plant. And um, the, this, the, the splitting of the rock is accompanied by shouts of joy across the outcrop. So, uh, so a day in the field here is, is, is moments of silence and then shout of joy there, everybody runs the sea, shout of joy there, everyone runs the sea. Uh, a curse over there, somebody broke their fossil. Yes. Um, you are using jackhammers, and I, mm -hmm. I wonder, how do you know when to stop using jackhammers when you're approaching something that's... Yeah, well... Um, the question is, when you're using a jackhammer, <laughs> how do you know when to stop before you break your fossil? So the first, very good question, the first step is we identify where the fossils are before we use the jackhammer. We, we, dig, we dig with lighter tools, little, little hammers, shovels, and we say, aha, here, the, here it is. Um, this little layer that's this thick is, where, is, is the pay layer. Um, so once we've identified that and we've marked it off in the outcrop, sometimes we use strange symbols like black rocks to indicate, to make strange lines in the desert indicating where the fossils are. <laughs> and uh, we, then, we then take the jackhammer and dig down not to as far as the layer, but we stop a, um, um, half a meter above. And then we dig with hand tools after that so we don't break it. The, How is the layer the different from yep. the stuff around it? Well, just so everyone hears the follow-up yeah, question: yeah. How is that layer with the fossils in it different mm -hmm. looking uh, than the the layers around it? Yeah. Well, you never know that whether that something will have fossils in it, but there there are there are a lot of cues. But we, we make many holes in the desert and don't find anything. Um, so the the very before we be, go making these big benches, these big holes in the ground. Um, we spend a lot of time going up and down the hill and digging and just looking. And a lot of it is based on experience, but um, fossil plants tend to be preserved in rocks that have very fine grain size, for example. So if, rocks, if, so if the sand grains are very large, that tells you that there was a lot of current energy and the, 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 the plants probably got beat up. Um, this particular layer is easy to find because it's very fine grain and it splits really nicely. The, the, as you can see, so the, you take a hammer and you split it, and, and um, most rocks don't do that. So we're looking for rocks, and after a while, your eye does learn to see, from, even from a distance, layers of, of rock. You can, you, can, you, can, it's, it's, you can see the horizontal laminations from quite a distance away once you, once you have some experience with it. Could there be other layers under this layer that are of a different age and how far below? The, the question is, mm -hmm. could there be other layers under that layer that are from a different age? Well, absolutely. So as you walk down the hill, because you know, if you think of a pile of newspaper for recycling, the first ones you throw out are at the bottom. They have the oldest date on them. The newspapers at the top have the, have the youngest date on them. Rocks are just the same. They're deposited through time. So as you walk down the hill, you're, you're walking forward into the past. You're going into older rocks. So each layer represents a volcanic explosion? The, um, the, the uh, I'm yeah. sorry, the follow-up uh, yeah. question is, does each layer represent a, a volcanic explosion? Some of them do. Uh, most of them represent sedimentation in a lake. So um, usually mixed with volcanic ash. I think at this, in this particular place, there was so much volcanic ash on the landscape that the rivers around the lake were always washing it in. 
So I think what you're seeing mostly is sand and mud and volcanic ash mixed together being flushed by streams into the lake. Now I think some of the plants are getting preserved because of blasting of the volcanoes. And I think that might explain why they're so well preserved. I think the volcanoes are probably blasting entire tree branches into the lake. And then they settle very, very quietly. The lake is probably pretty deep. It might be 1,000 feet deep. It settles very quietly. There's, there's no, nothing eats it at the bottom, probably because the water is very acid and very hot because of the uh, volcanic processes. We have a question in the back. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you more about that plant in a moment. But it's a cori pine. The one at the bottom is uh, agathis, a cori pine, which is one of the tallest um, conifers in the world. Um, but I'm going to come back to that. Yes? What is the basic organizing principle used to sort and categorize all this information that's going in? Genus, species, time? The question is, what is the basic organizing principle for categorizing all of these fossils? Well, that's a very good question because our, our sample sizes are huge. So we come back from the field with thousands of specimens. So we, 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 first we prepare them, we get them out of the rock, and then, then we sort them into morphological categories. This one looks like this one, this one looks like this one. So we do a preliminary sort based on the fine details of the shape, the venation of the leaves, if they're fruits and seeds, the different, the, the different characters of the fruits and seeds. I mean, everybody working on this project is a botanist, so we use the same basic criteria that you would use in a forest to figure out how many plants are in the forest, except that it's harder because these things are much more beat up and fragmented. Uh, once we have those preliminary, <coughs> preliminary sorting done, then you start to see, you, you need secondary tertiary sorting, but you see sets of characters um, that define each morphological group. At that point, when you ha we end up with hundreds of these morphological categories of fruits, seeds, flowers, um, leaves. Um, at, at that point, then the question is, can we recognize any of them? And I'm going to show you examples of some that we've recognized. Using, and at that point, it's botany, and that's the business of paleobotany, to use morphological characters to identify something. Good questions. I think, we'll, I think the questions will exponentiate, and I won't finish, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to finish. So um, the, this, is a, uh, this is a fresh bench. This is an entire dance floor quarry. It's about 27 square meters. It took an entire day to dig it. You need to let off a little steam when you're doing that. But that's, that was my, uh, was my master's student, Monica Carvalho, on the right, and my former postdoc, Arya Iglesias, who's from, is from Argentina, on the left. Um, just more joy of fossils. Once you've found something like that, you have to do it again. <laughs> that's, that's really why I'm in this business. Um, this beautiful thing um, I just found in November, I was digging on a ledge, mm, what's over here? This, you know, these are all leaves, they're all attached to a branch. I have some rough idea what it is, but right now it's still wrapped. Um, on this last trip in November, for a long time we were getting insect wings. And entomologists are pretty happy with insect wings. <laughs> Surprisingly happy. It's like, don't throw that out. It's like, what? It's just a little wing. But you know, they're gonna, if you show them just the wing, you know, they'll tell you, this is a new family of insects for South America. It's like, OK. So, <laughs> but on this last trip, the wings were connected to bodies. And the, this is really wonderful, because in the South American record of fossil insects is so sparse. For the last 65 million years, there are only 80 described species. 
that doesn't sound right. Has anyone ever been in Brazil? <laughs> you, you can swap more than 80 species in five minutes. So, <laughs> um, so this is also turning out to be an incredible source of information for insects. These are field photographs. These are as they came out of the rock. So this is some kind of tree hopper or leaf hopper. This is a stag beetle, like the ones that are expensive on eBay. And uh, another first for South America. This is an ant. That's its eye looking at you. <laughs> can you give the scale of those? Yeah, well, they're field the, photos. The so. question is, can you give a sense of the scale of these insects? Yeah. The stag beetle's about like that. The tree hopper's about like that. The ant's about like that. <laughs> but yeah, I just kind of threw those up there for you without the scale. Um, anyway, the result of all this digging has been hundreds of species of plants. Um, we have well over 200 species of plants at Laguna de Lunco. That's the ancient biodiversity that I told you about. Um, and uh, Rebecca and I made this uh, artful collage. These are all fossils, not modern leaves. <laughs> Just to give you more sense of the awe of the place. And uh, here's a frog leg, a weevil, a palm fruit, a palm leaf, um, something in the bean family, something in the macadamia nut family. Anyway. Uh, this is a this is a ginkgo. This is the last South American ginkgo. Doesn't look quite like our ginkgos. That aren't ours anyway. They come from Japan. Um, here's a little data for you. We have 27 major holes in the ground. We have 180 meters of rock measured. We have three radiometric dates. Uh, we've detected two magnetic reversals, going from the North Pole. If you, were if you could stand there with a compass, you you're, it would go 180, 180, 180 twice. Um, we have over 6,000 specimens, over 4,000 identified into a category, uh, most of them from four major holes in the ground. Uh, giant, beautiful leaf coming up here. Um, so this kind of shows you the scale of the work. About 212 different kinds of plant organs. 43 have, been, have names were previously described by somebody, but almost all of that work was done in the 20s and 30s and is incorrect. Since 1975 and before we started, only five <coughs> descriptions. So we have a lot of work to do to figure these things out, going back to your question. Um, most major groups of plants are represented. And here's some more data, but this is, didn't focus on this too closely, but this is the stratigraphic column. This shows the distribution of our samples. This shows the distribution of the dates. Um, and what this means is we can now, thanks to, because of our work, we can correlate this hill in the middle of nowhere in Patagonia um, to the global temperature record. We can correlate it to the bottom of the ocean, to a hill like it in Wyoming or Colorado, anywhere in the world. We know where it is in time, and we can compare it to other points in time. It also turns out that this, was the, this is a temperature curve for the last 100 million years, uh, the, a famous one that was published by Zachos et al. Um, in, in science, it's based, it's, this would be a digression to fully explain this, but it's based on chemical analyses of fossil microplankton from the bottom, of, that lived at the bottom of the ocean. Um, but the bottom line is, here, this is temperature through time, this is 60 million years ago. Here we are at 52 million years ago. This is the last, there's an interval of about one or two million years called the early Eocene climatic optimum. It's, it's the last time it was hot, really hot in the world. After that, it's beginning colder and colder and colder. We have the ice sheets, eventually the Arctic northern hemisphere ice sheets. Um, so 
this is very interesting to me. Going into this, we actually didn't know whether the date would be here or there. <laughs> well, we knew it would be above this line because this is the dinosaur extinction. We knew it was after that. But most likely it was somewhere in here. But it was originally published as being here. The original 1925 paper asserted this was a Miocene flora, so that would put it up here. When we went into it, there was sort of a vague understanding that the age range could be somewhere in here. But now we've got it to 51.91 plus or minus 0.22. It gives you an idea of the increase in precision. And what that can do for you, what a powerful ally it is when you have dates. And we, the people who actually do the analyses are highly skilled geoscientists called geochronologists, Earth time geochronology. And the people who do the work with us are at the University of Wisconsin. It's the uh, Brad Singer lab there. So just a little bit of geology. OK, now I'm going to talk about the legacy. Where are these plants now? Do, do, do these plants represent lineages that are still somewhere in South America, in Patagonia, in Brazil and Colombia? Um, or are their living relatives actually dispersed very, very far and wide? This is another question that we didn't really have a good answer to going in. We now have a much better idea of. I told you about this bizarre Australian connection. I showed you the platypus. I'm not going to show you the plant platypuses. Okay. So these, these uh, gorgeous sprays of foliage are from a fossil conifer um, that we just published um, as um, belonging to the modern genus Papua cedrus. It was the, uh, this was the cover article of the November American Journal of Botany. I'll pass that around for your enjoyment. And the name tells you something about where it can be found today. Papua cedrus only lives in New Guinea. <laughs> New Guinea geologically is really Australia. There's only shallow water separating Australia and New Guinea. They were connected by land even a few thousand years ago. So New Guinea is, is Australia, but hotter and with mountains. Papua cedrus doesn't just grow in New Guinea. It grows in the cloud forests of New Guinea. It grows in the mountains of New Guinea. So when we figured this out, it was, it was, a, it was an immediate environmental cue that maybe we weren't dealing with a sea level flora at all, which is how this has been characterized. Maybe we're looking at a montane flora, and maybe it was really wet. Because where this thing lives, it gets four meters of rain a year. That's where it's happiest. Four meters. What do we get here? About a meter. Imagine it raining four times as much, and never as snow, always as rain. Um, now, some of these, the next plants I'm going to show you are all, is a, they're all going to be a suite of conifers. And you have to adjust your eyes a little, because here in uh, Pennsylvania, I grew up in Philadelphia. We think of conifers as Christmas trees, pine trees, spruces, maybe a large, if we're thinking outside the box. Conifers are actually a much more diverse group than that. Many of them have broad leaves, not just needles. The southern conifers in particular are, look very different from, from pine trees. This is actually a conifer. It doesn't have flowers. It reproduces with cones. Um, I, I cut the picture to save a little time, but we have the cone of this attached to the branch for the first time. So this is the first South American occurrence of Papua cedrus ever. It's the oldest occurrence. It's the first fossil cone, which is very important for identifying the plant. And it's a platypus because it's showing us the southern connection. Yeah? This connection between the fossils and the plants in the beginning, is that based only on morphology? Or? Well, it has to be based the, the, on morphology. I'm sorry, Peter. The question oh, was, yeah. is the connection between this fossil and the plants mm -hmm. in Papua New Guinea based um, only on morphology? In a word, yes, because what we've done is botanically we've identified this. It has many, many of the morphological characters that define um, the modern 
thing, pop OS address. So we can define it as belonging to the same group. Um, so there's The follow-up question is, has there been any attempt to do a biochemical analysis to help identify the plant? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. The uh, DNA analysis doesn't get you back more than about 50,000 years if you're extremely lucky. You were all at the talk last week, or some of you were, about fossil mammoths and what was the oldest fossil mammoth with DNA in that talk, 50,000 years, 40,000 years. So here we're talking a, a thousand times older. So DNA is out of the question. Now these plants, th there are chemical compounds that preserve from these plants, and, and they're very interesting. Um, and they're called biomarkers. And my colleague here at, at Penn State, Kate Freeman, studies them. At this point, they can, um, at this point, they can usually, they can often tell you what family of plants you're in, but not more detailed than that. This family of plants um, includes junipers that grow in your yard here. So from that marker, you wouldn't know if it was a, a, a juniper from Massachusetts or a. Uh, a Papua's address from New Guinea. We have a question here, Peter. Yes. Uh, what would have been at that time sort of like the ratio between evergreens and deciduous? And mm -hmm. the second kind of personal question is there such a thing as Patagonia umbra? So mm. there are two questions. One, the, what is the rate, mm. what would have been the ratio between uh, deciduous and evergreen trees at that mm -hmm. the time? And the second, uh, if, is there such a thing as Patagonian umber? Right. Uh -huh. Okay, so the first the question about evergreen and deciduous um, is, is a good one. And there's, there's, the plants don't tell you how long they lived or whether they fell at the same time. Um, there are ways to estimate that. But I, I think the story I'm starting to tell you about the environment, that this was a rainforest, maybe a montane rainforest, that kind of environment is associated strongly with evergreen vegetation. So I've had to flip a... Put a, put a wager down right now, I'd say this is predominantly um, evergreens, which are trees that don't drop their leaves at all at the same time. They do drop their leaves, but not at the same time. Um, and then I don't think there's any Patagonian. We find, well, okay. So we find, th there, aren't, there isn't amber, like the classic kind that has flowers and insects. But in these, in these uh, plants, in these conifers, there's fossil resin, which is actually amber. It's the resin that flowed in through the resin ducts of the ancient conifer. And in that article, you can see nice pictures of it. So, yes. <laughs> but if you're looking for fossil, beautiful fossil insects, no, inside amber. Sorry, doing the best I can. Okay, so this is another one. Um, this is a plant called Dacrycarpus in New Zealand. It's called Kahikatea. Um, and this is the only, this is Dacrycarpus, never forgive the name, but it's a very common type of fossil conifer, mostly known from Australia. Um, there are hundreds of occurrences of it. They've never, ever, ever been found with cones, except for this one. So, so there are eight cones on here. They're right in my lab. I have them on loan. The reason is that the cones in this group of trees um, are attached by this fleshy, bit here that today parrots eat. It's actually edible. And this is soft and it breaks off. So we almost never, ever, ever find these cones. But the cones are absolutely diagnostic of this particular kind of tree, of the Kahikatea tree. Where does it live? Not in South America. It lives, um, it lives in, uh, not in Australia either, but in New Guinea, Borneo, um, Laos, Burma, New Zealand, 
here's a Kahikatea tree in the, in the Botanic Garden at Melbourne, just to give you an idea of what that might have looked like. And here are the cones, and you can see in the, in the Kahikatea tree, they're brilliant colors to attract the parrots. That eat, and you can, you can eat this part if the bird doesn't get it first. So this is another really neat discovery. It's also a, a southern connection for the flora. And these are some more weird conifers. This is one called uh, flip leaf, because the leaves are literally flipped into a plane. You can see they're kind of twisted on the axis. This is interesting because it does grow in Colombia and Ecuador, but it also grows in New Caledonia and Fiji today. So this suggests that this rainforest conifer used to live in Patagonia, and it retreated in two different directions. That's one hypothesis for its current distribution. This is another one called Aquapile, which is only found in New Caledonia and Fiji, which are um, islands in the Australian New Guinea vicinity. Um, these, one reason I'm so attracted to the conifers, to these conifers, is that they're extremely drought sensitive. Um, you can, they give up and die if you interrupt their rainfall. If they have even a slight dry season, the modern relatives of these conifers give it up because they have very inefficient ways of conducting water. So for that reason, um, my colleague Tim Broadrib at University of Tasmania has done the plant torture to quantify this, to quantify the point where they give up, how much, what, what are the water requirements of these conifers that have good fossil records. Uh, because of that, these are actually good climate proxies for ancient rainfall. Maybe one of them all by itself, maybe not so much, but if you have six, seven, eight different things, they all have the same kind of physiology in their modern relatives. That, I think that is telling you something. So I think we're getting cues that this, is, this was an area with a lot of rainfall. Um, how do you get it to rain so much? You have to have mountains. If, it, if Patagonia is flat, the, the moisture from the Pacific can't rise, cool, and rain. So I think we're seeing a signal from these little plants of, um, of, of an ancient mountain range of some kind. Um, these, the, these plants don't look like much, but they're, uh, they belong to agathis or quarry pine, which is extremely important tree. Um, we, we have for the first time attachment of the leaves to the axis, the diagnostic terminal bud, the seed scales for the first time ever of, of agathis. This is the first South American occurrence. Agathis has never been found outside of Australia as a fossil. Um, it's never been, it doesn't live in South America today. Uh, we also have about 80 of these pollen cones, which may also belong to agathis. Um, why is agathis so important? Well, it's, it's one of the true forest giants. It's, it's the one kind of conifer that grows abundantly in, in low tropical rainforests as well as in the mountains. It's one of the most overexploited timber trees in the world. It's, it's a, almost, it has about 22 species um, in Asia, Australasia. Almost every one of them is endangered. Um, and Agathis is very easy to cut. It's a very nice wood to work with, and everybody wants it, as you see on the right. But the largest living Agathis is in New Zealand. It's the one on the left. It has a Maori name, Tane Mahuta, Lord of the Forest. 51 meters tall, 14 meters circumference, 517 cubic meters of volume. That's a lot of wood. You can see why these guys were looking for a buck here. Um, so Agathis throughout its range, including New Zealand, is severely, severely depleted. Um, but from these, from these fossils, we can you know, we can make a reasonable inference that these giant trees lived in Patagonia 50 million years ago, um, and probably were very tall. And most significantly of all, they lived in Patagonia, not just in Australia. We also have ferns in the flora, which my uh, grad student, Monica Carvalho, started to work on. And she just figured out what this one was, because it's packed with sporangia right down here. All these little dots 
which I kind of overlooked in my haste. Those are just little horrible bits of coal. Those are actually sporangia, which have, give you diagnostic characteristics of the fern. So this actually is the Todia, which is a king fern. Uh, I have some pictures of it that I took a few years ago in Australia. It lives in New Guinea, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. So it's another southern connection plant. Okay, then we get into the flowering plants. And you want some weird plants. Here they are. Uh, have you ever heard of sand pines or heaks? If you've been down to Florida, they grow in the dunes all the time. They look like pines, but they're not. They're really bizarre flowering plants. And they make these cones that are actually fruits. They're not cones. We have, there's a particular group of these called gymnostoma. We have three species of them. Um, they live only in rainforests in Malaysia, Fiji, New Caledonia, and Northeast Australia. We published this in 2006. Um, and we have the cones, we have the pollen cones, we have the pollen in the pollen cones. So we've really got it nailed. Um, a few years ago, I made a pilgrimage to Noah Creek in Queensland, Australia. Um, we found this uh, gymnostoma island. This is a whole bank of the living gymnostoma growing in tropical rainforest in Australia. Um, here's another example, the turnip wood. There I am holding a, a, a turnip wood leaf from New South Wales. Um, there's the fossil from Laguna de Lunco. And I'm saving the best part of this. <laughs> this is the, the mo one of the more dramatic ones. We actually have fossil eucalyptus. So I told you about platypus and koala. If there's a plant that rates as high as, a, as platypus and koala in the, in the essence of Australia list, it's the gum tree. It's eucalyptus, right? There's 700 species. Almost all of them live only in Australia. And the Australians have puzzled for years. You know, where's the fossil record of this thing? How come we only get it 23 million years ago? How, why does it show up so late? So we have these beautiful fruits of eucalyptus that are 52 million years old, 30 million years before it's in Australia from South America. So this is truly a platypus plant. Did they all stink? I'm sorry? Did they all stink? Probably. Yeah, if you don't like that smell. That's another thing about being a paleobotanist. Whatever horrible smells <laughs> they once had are long gone. And uh, amazingly, we have fruits that preserve the, the top view, which botanically is, is extremely important. I won't bore you with these if you're not into it, but this, th these allow us to diagnose. So this really is eucalyptus, not some bizarre cousin, not some extinct thing. We presented this in Australia to, where there are 10 eucalypt experts per square meter. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is very big. And they said, yeah. No problem. I mean, you make these identifications. You make the decisions based on your botany. You think, OK, I'm going to get resistance. They're not going to believe this. And it's so satisfying when you go to a meeting and they say, oh, yeah, <laughs> you've got it. And in fact, I had an Australian colleague tell me, this is just a joke, of course, but he said, he, he said uh, first the Americans fake the moon landing. Now they fake this incredible fossil site. <laughs> so. This, pro this project has spun a lot of really neat collaborations with Australian colleagues, and that's been a really satisfying part of it for me. We also have the leaves of eucalyptus, living ones on the left, fossil ones on the right. Uh, living eucalyptus is full of oil. It's, it's ready to burn, baby. Light me up. You can see the little oil dots in the fossil. That's it. And on the last field trip, we've been getting fruits, 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 fruits. We finally got a flower. Yay. 
Um, okay, so I've, I've told you, I've given you a lot of the platypus connection, the south of the southern connection. So far, this may change because remember I told you we have hundreds of species. The next 60 might have stronger relationships with Colombia and Venezuela and Brazil than with Australia, perhaps. Right now, we don't have a lot of that connection. This is one example, though, of a plant that only lives in, in what, the, what we call the neotropics, the American tropics today. Um, these are beautiful fruits and leaves of uh, Bixa, the, Bixa, the anato, anato tree, widely used as a source of red and reddish-brown dye, uh, planted quite a lot, actually, in, um, for that use, in, even in plantations. Um, so there's a neotropical connection, but that's kind of fuzzy. It's not nearly as strong as this platypus connection. What about South America? What about Patagonia? Does, did any of this stuff somehow hang on in Patagonia? Well, that's also still pretty cloudy. Um, a few weeks ago, I had another day at the office at this place. It's called the uh, Waterfall of the Singers. As the water tumbles on the granite so hard that it's, it's like a, a million voices singing. It's so loud. Um, and this, this is only about 150 miles from Laguna de Longo. But remember, I told you, when you cross the Andes, it's all of a sudden super wet. So it's a lot colder than it was 50 million years ago. But maybe, maybe, there, maybe something somehow survived there. Well, maybe. Um, I'm starting to doubt it more and more. So walking along this trail, uh, by the way, this is Fitzroya, named for the captain of the Beagle. This tree is probably, doesn't look like much, but it's at least 1,000 years old. It might be 1,500 years old. It's called the Alerce. It's heavily cut for timber. Um, millions of Chilean houses are made out of Fitzroya. Um, so it's another conservation target. So a lot, of these, a lot of these trees that are very ancient are also now threatened. Um, today, not all of them. Papua Cedrus is safe because it's growing up at you know, 11,000 feet where the chainsaws haven't come yet. So I took a walk through this forest uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, very happy finally to get a look at some of the supposed living relatives of some of my fossils that have been named in the literature. So this is a beautiful fossil called uh, Lamecia preferiginia from Laguna de Lunco. Um, it's in the macadamia nut family, um, which is actually a very big group of plants called the Proteaceae, but it's, rel it's related distantly to the macadamias. Um, here's a lovely fossil. It has this name because back in 1925, a paleobotanist thought it looked like this thing, Lamecia ferruginia, Lamecia preferruginia, Lamecia ferruginia. This was growing in the rainforest a few weeks ago. Are they related? I don't know. <laughs> you can see why he thought that in 1925. So yeah, I get it. But you know, a detailed examination, no fruits and seeds, no flowers, just leaves. It's pretty hard to say they're related, no cuticles. We have yeah. a question here. The, uh, Freud once said that the only thing that justified the discovery of the Western Hemisphere was tobacco. It's partly true, I'm sure. I try not to listen to that guy too much, but. <laughs> yeah, it's a joke. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the question is uh, anything that you know about tobacco, I'd like to hear. Fossil tobacco? The, the question is what can you tell us about ancient tobacco? Almost nothing, because tobacco, tobacco is an herb, and herbs don't fossilize well, and tobacco is part of a, a, a group of plants that has a pretty poor fossil record. So I can't think of any fossil tobacco. Good. Good. Uh, 
love tobacco. Now, the second question is that calving off of Antarctica, right? Yeah. Uh, that huge calving. I, I mean, your colleagues say that seven or eight, ten years from now, it might mess up the currents of South America and uh, and then presumably the rest of the world. But the, there's no scuttlebutt on that that you know of. I, I, you know, the, when they talk about it, they said it's a possibility. You're talking, about, you're talking about the loss of ice now in Antarctica today? Yeah, I'm talking about a, a particular calfing that's mm -hmm. huge, and mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's about seven to ten years before it moves into close to South America. But, uh, mm -hmm. but if it did, I mean, for example, if your area of uh, Patagonia were mm -hmm. to have a huge amount of rainfall, what would that do to your research? It can happen because the, if you're talking about my site changing yeah. due to climate change. No, not climate change. This particular from a particular iceberg. Yeah, it, it won't happen. It's too far inland. The prevailing winds are west to east. Any any extra moisture that it could generate would, would be picked up by the Andes on the west side right. before it got to the east. But it's like uh, it's like saying you couldn't have a tropical cyclone move into South mm -hmm. America, and yet they did. We have ten more minutes um, left, and. Peter, I'd like you to have the opportunity to show us any remaining slides that you, you want us to see and, and to perhaps have a few more questions. Okay, I'm pretty close to the end. This has gone pretty well, I think, with, in terms of time and questions. So, so here's another one. Um, this is a beautiful fossil leaf. has the name Laurelia guineazui from Laguna de Lunco. From the same area, here I am in a whole tree of Laurelia philippiana. So yeah, has the same leaf fination. Is it a really close relative? I don't know. The teeth are a little different. Yes? I had a question about the last slide. Mm -hmm. You had said that the uh, question whether the pre-ferrogenia Yeah, pre-ferrogenia and ferrogenia were related is unknown. It has to be studied and looked at. But right. How will they make a determination? Well, I mean, the, uh, Peter, I'll just yeah. rephrase. Going yeah. back to the previous slide, the gentleman's question is, um, when you have an open question about whether two mm -hmm. plants are related, how is that decision made? Yeah, so everyone agrees they're related at family level and probably tribe level. But is this a surviving, is this, a, the really interesting question is, is this represent some kind of survivor from that? That's very hard to answer, but what, what will really help is if we find the associated flowers, fruits, seeds, or leaf cuticles that give us additional information. Right now we just have the leaf that can tell us a lot, but it's not, it's often not sufficient for. So simply by discovering other fossils with more yeah. structural details. Absolutely. The more information you have, the better a decision you can no, make. No uh, biochemical. No. no other. All you can tell is that it's a flowering plant versus a non-flowering plant right now. Now I'm hoping my colleagues will come up with some magic thing, but um, we still have to do botany. I like doing botany. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to put a sign on my lab in the near future, something about that plants aren't, that, that plants are plants, and that I like them as they are. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't want to lose diagnosing flowers and fruits and seeds in favor of stuffing things into a, into a mass spectrometer. Oh, so if you remember the first slide, I showed the dig really large. I showed a rainforest in the background, but it was nearly whited out. And I told you that, that somehow represented my thought process. So now that we're at the end, my attempt to close this thought process with you, 
I've, I've made the digging smaller because I've, I've taken you from the digging to, to some of the science. Um, I've made the, part of the science has been understanding what all this represents, so I've made that a little brighter and less opaque, but still with a little sheen of mystery over it. Um, but this is what we do. We try to decode what's here, bring the forest forward, um, and figure out what's interesting about it. And I think in the last 10 years, we have figured out a lot about the system that was never known before. Um, so ancient biodiversity, we found that there are um, hundreds of species of fossil plants that no one knew about. Uh, we've done these statistical analyses. We've compared these to fossil plants known from the same time on other continents like North America. And the number of species here in Patagonia is much higher. That's interesting. And at first I thought this had to do simply with the fact that it was in South America. And South America has huge numbers of species today. But now as we're seeing more of these platypus plants, I'm becoming convinced that there's something even more interesting than that, that these, uh, this location at the biological crossroads means that this area is getting inputs from these migrations during the warm climate across Antarctica. Um, it's getting inputs from the rest of South America. And there are also probably local effects too. There are different kinds of rocks present. You, we know this. We can see the lavas that are there now, different compositions. Each of these today generates different kinds of floral communities, the same kinds of rocks. So even locally, there's probably a lot of heterogeneity in the habitat. But the biodiversity remains remarkable. This is one of the great examples. This is becoming one of the great examples of an extremely diverse ancient ecosystem that's completely gone. Um, it's completely gone. Where did it go? So this is the other puzzle. Um, we, we don't really have a, cl a clear signal anymore for anything living in the area that's very closely related to this fossil flora. We have to go thousands of miles away, climb mountains in New Guinea, walk through the Queensland rainforest to find the living relatives that we've so far identified. Um, this means that we've lost a lot. So instead of this, this is a, Queen, this is a New South Wales rainforest. You know, instead of this, we have this. Um, so all, all that vegetation, all the giant quarry trees, all the kahikateas, all the eucalyptus, they're all gone. Andrea? Are you suggesting that if you, if you could dig in Antarctica, you'd find similar communities? The question is, if, mm -hmm. are, are you suggesting that if we did dig in Antarctica, we'd find similar communities? Oh, it's, it's been done. The, uh, there aren't any fossil deposits like this in Antarctica. But we do see similar patterns. We see there is actually a fossil Papua Cedrus from Antarctica, for example. Um, this is a story of climate change and extinction. This was a, uh, almost at the end, this, this is a, a place that had very high rainfall, very warm climate. It's now cold, pretty dry. Um, but that, but the, there's something more to it, too. There seems to be a topographic story that all these rainforest plants lived on a mountain range that completely eroded away was replaced by another mountain range with different plants, which is the modern Andes. And I've just been starting to see that, the tip of that iceberg recently, thinking about this. Um, but certainly, we see response to climate change. If we look at the other floras that we're studying through time, we see response to climate change. So we see, if you, if you bring in those other floras I told you about, we see, we see an extinction at the end of the age of dinosaurs. After the extinction, we see a flora that's surprisingly rich, but not well connected to Australia, doesn't have platypus plants. Then in the Eocene, when it's warm, we see the platypus plants, and I think that represents the, the, the fact that it was warm, and there's a big increase in interchange across Antarctica. Uh, so that's a really neat climate change story. 
And I think there is some conservation relevance. I think we're documenting better how some important uh, forest trees that are actually used for timber have much more interesting history over a much larger area than anyone had realized. We have um, a question up front, Peter. Yeah. Yes. In the period that you're studying here mm -hmm. to, to, to now, do we have any information on the constancy of the amount of water on the earth? The question is, mm -hmm. do we have information about the amount of water on the Earth from the period you're studying until the present day? The total amount of water on Earth is, is, is constant, more or less. The, uh, the sea level, we have relative sea level we have good data on. Um, and in fact, there, this, this same area was probably underwater uh, maybe 10, 15 million years later at least for a little while before the modern pulse of Andes. Well, during this hot period, how high did the sea raise, in, say, in relation to what it is now? Um, sea level was higher. Um, you could go to, I've, I've collected, um, let's see, I've collected coastal plants in Mississippi, from northern Mississippi, for example. So the, the, if you went to the Gulf of Mexico now, the Gulf of Mexico, Gulf of Mexico then, it would be bigger because the, the sea would be further inland. Um, so I can't. Give you a number, but I, you know, we're talking on the order of, um, you know, 50 meters higher, probably. But overall, that's a very rough ballpark, but yeah, sure. it's a significant amount, but not enough to drown everything like the end of 2012. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a drawing of the Laguna de Lanco Lake by uh, Rebecca Isla Escher with the volcano, the frog. These are all fossil leaves. Well, I think we have to leave it at that. But please join me in thanking Peter Will for a very. Oh, yes. Sweet.